Uh, it's Memorial Day weekend, and I know it's a time in our country that we acknowledge those who have uh, given their life for our country in memory of them. But I, I know we probably have veterans here that uh, they put their life on the line and made it. So if you're a young man or an old man or an old young woman or an old woman or you, you're a veteran, that's probably the best way to say it, Hackett. If you're a veteran, if you would just stand and we want to acknowledge you, uh, we are so grateful. Any veterans in house? All right. Just give them a hand. Okay. A number of them. All right. Appreciate. We appreciate your service. Uh, just a week ago, my wife and I went to Italy. We went with a study abroad group uh, and a couple of professors. And uh, I've been out of the country before, and I'm just telling you, when you, when you land on American soil, there's just something uh, about this country that we are blessed. We don't know it. I often say, go somewhere else and come back, and uh, we, we live in an unbelievable uh, country that we, I am just grateful for. And so I appreciate those that... Uh, give themselves in service for our country. Thank you very much. Bless you. All right. Uh, I, Jeff called me on Thursday or Friday just to, to say, hey, you ready and do you need anything and so forth. He actually did a wedding last night out of state about six o'clock at night. And he just thought about a month ago, he said, you know, that's going to be rushing back and so forth. So he asked me if I would speak. Um, and he's actually taken today today to be in Atlanta and be with his mom and other extended family workers or members and so forth. So uh, he asked me, uh, uh, you, you okay, you ready? I said, the, the tough part, Jeff, of following you is your humor. Uh, yeah, and, I, and, and it was interesting. This is the honest to God truth. I, I was just praying about that this morning, thinking about that. And uh, I think it's because I don't eat a Chick-fil-A as often as he does. There must be something in the chicken that has, uh, maybe it's a funny bone or something like that. I, I always heard there was a wishbone, but maybe there's funny bones or something in there. Uh, I do have a couple humorous things to say. If you have any mercy and compassion, you will laugh during those times. And I'll actually give you a cue, so, you know, laugh. Uh, that will help at that particular point. Uh, but it's good to be here. I like to have lights on. I like to see who I'm speaking to rather than just spotlights in me. In the earlier service, my wife was here. And uh, we've been married, in, in, actually, in 25 days. It'll be 50 years. Uh, I was two. I was two when she married me. So, you know, you know I'm so young. Okay. Uh, but often, I, I just like to look at her because well, I love her. But also, the, she'll throw me kisses somewhere in the service uh, because we have such love. Actually, it's because uh, it, she told me it means keep it, keep it, uh, what is it, K-I-S, uh, yeah, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, that's what it is. Thank you. Somebody help me out. See, I am stupid. I can't even remember what the kiss meant. I just thought it was love type of thing. Hey, I'm going to start with a, a passage of scripture. My sermon is not coming from this, but it leads into the message. Uh, it's in John chapter 9. Jesus is uh, walking with his disciples. Uh, obviously, he's always walking with them. He didn't uh, have a car or anything like that. But he's walking with his disciples, and they come across a man who has been born blind. And he's been blind all his life. I think it's something like 38 years. And they raise this question, which is a typical, very typical human question. All right? And particularly, I think sometimes in the church, as a, as a Christian question, we ask this question. This is what they say in verse 1. As, they, you know, as he saw the man burn, they asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he was born blind? In other words, they're saying that blindness must be caused by sin or any tragedy or any infirmity or any difficulty that we go through must be due to some sin in somebody's life, particularly in the person who is having an experience and an affliction, or maybe their, their parents or their family or something along that line. It, it's just, you know, and I've heard that before. It, it's interesting because I remember before I came to Southeastern, I pastored out in Arizona, and we were about two miles away from what's known as the Indian, uh, American Indian Bible College. And all the teachers at that college are home missionaries. They have to raise their support in order to teach there. And I had a couple of the families from that college, since we were just a couple of miles away, that uh, attended my church. And, and one couple were, had five or three children. And their youngest daughter was a little uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl, five years old. And I never knew this until they told me. They, they told me one time she's, she's going into surgery. And I said, oh, I didn't know there was anything wrong. And he said, well, she's had a number of surgeries because she was born with a birthmark basically from her, her, her neck down. And uh, here she is, a Caucasian, a, a white person, and, and, and yet she has this birthmark. And she said, you know, w- she's been having skin grafts and so forth to kind of overcome that. And they said to me, they said they have been in a number of churches and they're often, they're, they're, somebody in the church will tell them, you, you know, wh- well, why is your daughter this way? Is it, you know, did she sin? Did you sin? Is there sin in your life? It, it's those sort of people I just want to punch in Jesus' name, but, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, there, are, there are people that think that. So the disciples, here they are, uh, spending their time with Jesus, with the King of Kings and Lords of Lords, you know, all-knowing God, and yet they're still asking questions like this. They're human just like you and I. And, and they fall into this sort of thing, and it, it's, it's just a, a common thing that we, we deal with. And I, I know as a pastor, sometimes I can remember young couples in my church that lost their child at birth, and they look at you as a pastor and say, you know, Pastor, Why? Give us the answer for that sort of thing. And, and I wish I had all the answers. There's, there's an old movie, uh, I'm trying to think how many years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, called Rudy. Uh, if you ever saw that movie, movie, Rudy's dream is to play football for the University of Notre Dame. It's actually based on a true story of the movie. And, and he applies to Notre Dame, doesn't get in, and so he applies to a junior college right like next to Notre Dame. And each year he's applying again, trying to get in. Finally, at the end of his, his second year at the, the community college, he gets into Notre Dame and, and starts playing on the football team, but never is, you know, he's there in practice. He's a walk-on and he's willing to give his all, but never is, can suit up on game day. Not until the, the, the last game of the season does he actually am allowed to suit up and go out on the field with the team because, you know, he's ready to graduate and it's his last time. And just at the end of the game, he finally gets in. But while he's in the community college, he's asking his priest, you know, why is this happening? Why can't I get in? I'm giving my all, you know, and then even when he's uh, finally uh, practicing with them, he's not allowed to suit up. You know, his name's never on the list. And why is this? And I, and I remember the priest in the movie saying this, I, and, and it always stuck with me. He said, 
you know, he said, I know there's two things that I'll always remember. One, there is a God. And second, I am not him. And there are times in, in our life we, we just want to know why God does something. And particularly as a pastor, you, you're hoping that you know those things, but you don't. And I can remember times dealing that. Why do babies die? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why do some sons and daughters go to, go to war and some come back and some don't? That's always hard for particularly a soldier that has, has been through different uh, you know, times and, and they come back and, and they lost their friends and they're wondering why me. That's it's part of post-traumatic syndrome to kind of deal with that particular thing. And you want to know why, why, why. We as human beings at times feel that we are entitled to an answer for the things that happen to us in life. We carry that with us. And we want to have a reason for that particular thing. And probably the classic book that deals with this, and uh, you, you might know I'm already gone there, is the book of Job. Now let me, let me just get a little background of Job. Job uh, is, we're, we're not sure of the author. We don't know if it is Job or somebody else or something, one of his friends or so forth. But it's, it's cons- not sure of the date, it's considered to be written sometime around the time of the patriarchs. The patriarchs are people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we read about in Genesis, uh, the book of Genesis. And Moses is writing the first five books of the Bible. They, they feel that the book of Job was written before Moses was even born. So the feeling, possibly, is that Job is the oldest scripture that we have. Actually, the first scripture that was written. Now, that's interesting because of the message that Job has. All right? And I want to I read from the first two chapters. And it's not going to be on your screen, but I, let, let me read it to you. And, and you might already know the story, but let's just look at what the book says because we want to look at this, what is, Job is called a book, uh, one of the wisdom literature of scripture. Wisdom literature. God is trying to teach us a principle in this book. What is he trying to teach us? So in in Job chapter one, it says, in the land of Uz, not Oz, Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and he had three daughters. And he owned, listen to this, 7,000 sheep, I mean, I, what's that, a three-car garage? I don't know. Yeah, that's a lot of sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He, he was the greatest man among all the people of the, the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting was done... Uh, had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. And early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my, my children might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts during this time of feasting. And so that became his regular custom every time they did that, that he was going to make sacrifice for them to make sure they were right with God. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth, going back and forth. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There is no one on earth like him. That's a pretty powerful statement that God is making about Job. There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God, and he shuns evil. And then Satan responds with this. He says, does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, does he follow you because he has all these benefits? Would he still follow you if he didn't have all these sheep and camels and donkeys and, and oxen and so forth? And, and then Satan replies, have you, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has, a hedge of protection so that he has all these things? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But then he says to, to God, Stretch your hand out and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Take away all his possessions, he tells God, and he'll curse you. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, don't lay a finger. And then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And look what happens to him. Let me read this. This is pretty amazing. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sebans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire from God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept out in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Now this didn't happen over a period of time. One right after the other telling him, of this trauma and this tragedy that has happened, not only to all his possessions, but to his entire children. Whoa, whoa. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, which was a sign of mourning in that time. And then he fell to the ground in worship and said, this is what he says to God, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. I don't know if I'd be doing that. I don't know if you and I would be doing that. Lost everything. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Naked I came from this world, naked I'll return. May the name of the Lord be praised after hearing all that news. Right? Wow. In all this, it says, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan again answered the Lord, from roaming the earth through, uh, throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without 
any reason. Wow, without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan, what is he saying? Hey, God, if you, you, you punish him physically, he'll curse you. So the Lord says to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. Now, I don't know what that affliction was, but I do know that there is uh, a thing called shingles. Maybe some of you have experienced it. Uh, I've had a number of professors at the university that have gone through it, and they said it's just horrible to go through. They sores and, and so forth. I know one person had it even on their eye. It lasts for, for days, sometimes months, and, and, and you just kind of you know, grit your teeth and go through it. Deal with that. Uh, you know, I don't know where, when Terry Bradshaw comes and knocks on your doors and comes in and says, hey, let's talk about shingles, but you know, uh, that's there. But it sounds like something like that that was so painful and horrible. And so Job's wife says to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? She's no help. Curse God and die. And as far as we know, that's the last we hear of that particular wife. She leaves him and, and that's it. So he's, he's lost everything. Uh, and again, Job replies to his wife, you, you are talking like a foolish woman. I don't know if I'd get away with that with my house, but shall, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Wow, that's a thought. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, the scripture then tells us that he has three friends that come and hear about his situation and they see him from afar off and they don't even recognize him because of his physical condition. But probably the best thing that these friends do is they spend a week with him in silence, just kind of being there in support. If they had stopped there, they probably would have been good friends. But after that, there are three discourses that we find in the book where they tell Job, you're in this situation because there must be sin in your life or in the life of your family. The same thing the disciples said to Jesus when they saw the blind man. Why is this man born blind? Is it his sin or the sin of his family? And basically what's happening, these three friends are, are just accusing Job over and over again. You, you must not care for the poor. You, you must not live a holy life. You must not make enough sacrifice. You, you, you must not care for your family. All these things. And Job responds to every single accusation that they make to him. Uh, finally, after doing that, then they start attacking, well, it must be the sin of your children. And again, he explains to them, no, I make sacrifice for them all the time so that they, w- they will be right before God. And so they can't find anything wrong. So after all this, you get to the chapter 32, they basically, they, they become quiet at that point. And Job, all the way through, is asking God, God, I, I would love to have an audience with you that I at least can defend myself and get an answer for what's going on. God, help me to understand. 
in, in chapter 32, a young man who's kind of sitting on the sidelines hearing these three friends talk and Job defend himself, a young man speaks up because obviously as a young man, he knows it all, right? Not that we know any youth that know it all. I find some at Southeastern, they already know it. I wonder why they even come to college. You know, what can I teach them? They already know it all. Uh, you know, after they graduate, like 20 years later, they realize how, how much I learned over that time. Oh, you became smarter, Hackett. Okay. Well, maybe it was, no, okay. But we won't go there because I'm just dealing with from frustration in my life, but whatever. But anyway, uh, so he comes up and, and basically says the same thing, that, that Job must be, there must be sin there. But then he does make a, an interesting statement that has an element of truth to it. He says this, sometimes God allows punishment or affliction or pain or trouble to come to us to basically chasten us. Now, I read that in a book just a couple days ago, so I thought, let's make sure I understand what chasten means. So I looked it up, and chasten means this. It means to repent or to be punished, but it also means to humble. And sometimes God might bring us to a place with things in our life to show us that we're not in control. And there are things that are out of our hand. And, and Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He, he talks about a time in his life where he despaired even of life. And he realized that his hope was not in himself, but he, 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 he said that my hope is in God who raises the dead. I come to that place. And sometimes God allows things in our life to get us to that place that we reach out to God. But that's not what happened in in Job's situation. Now, the frustrating thing is I'm reading chapters one and two of Job. I want to say, Job, read this, all right? And then you'll know what's going on. It's because you're really a good guy that God's allowing this to happen. If you weren't such a good guy, this might not be happening because there's this contest going on in heaven between Satan and God, and and you're like the, the main dude. But he doesn't know that. We know it, but Job doesn't know it. He doesn't know why all this trouble has happened into his life. And yet, he still loves God. Now, let me go back again. This is perhaps the first scripture ever written. Now, when you're thinking about that, if God wants to get out a message, maybe this is a primary message that he wants us as his followers to learn. That at times there might be trouble in our life and things might go wrong and there might not be an answer for it. And I understand that sometimes when we do sin, bad things happen. You get drunk and you go driving drunk and you crash and you hurt people. That was a bad choice. There's no question there. That's, you know, stupidity. That's, that's bad. But when you're like Job, blameless, a person of integrity, and bad things happen, that doesn't make sense. And we want an answer from that particular thing. God, answer me in this situation. That's a frustrating thing. Many times we go through dilemmas like that. It's interesting, even as I spoke this in the first service, a young man came up to me afterwards and he said, my mother, we we just lost our dad about a month ago, died of cancer. And he he said, my mom is is very hurtful, very angry. Well, I understand that. Wants to know why those things happen. Well, sometimes they just happen. 
Will we trust God in those times? So the point of of Job is whether human beings will trust and respect and follow God, even when God doesn't give an answer or an explanation for what's going on in our life. Now, when we get to chapter 38 and to the end of the book, God speaks and he tells us what happens. And when God speaks, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reading the book and I'm saying, okay, God, now you can explain to, to Job that there was this contest and, and you know, Job was the really good person here and this is why this calamity fund, just to, to bring out what's inside him. But he doesn't do that. When you start reading chapter 38, God answers this way. He says, Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I separated light from darkness and separated the oceans from, from land? Where were you when I, when I created the, the, the creatures of the sea and the creatures of the land? Where were you when I, I put stars in the sky and the moon and the sun during the day? Where were you when I, when I created seasons and made love bugs for Florida? You know, where were you when I did these things? And... and It's kind of like, God, why are you answering that way? What is God saying? There's a sense when you're in the presence of God, there's a sense of awesomeness when you realize this. Being in Italy a week ago, we we were in Florence for about two or three days, and we went to a place called the Doma. It's a structure that was, it, it took them 144 years to do. 144 years, you can think about the fact that the architect would have to pass that information on to the next architect, to the next architect, because the people who started it didn't see the completion of it. And not only that, the workers, you know, would have to kind of line up to see the completion because they would pass away. It was a building that was in process when they died. At Southeastern, we're building the building, and we'll be happy if it's done in two years. 144 years. And as we walked into the, before we walked into this place when we had an appointment time, uh, one of our professors said, he had been in it before, he said, you're going to walk in this building and there's going to be a sense of awe. And he said, you're going to feel very small because of the, the artwork and the, and the, the statues and the, uh, all, all that's in here. You're going to be taken back because of the, the awesomeness in the place. And that, that's something made by human hands. In fact, visiting various places in Italy and Florence and in Rome, it, you know, it just, it, it amazed me. I was in Florence and we went and we saw the, the statue that, that, of David that Michelangelo did, 17 foot high. It was built to be put on top of the building and just to look at the intricacy of that and walking around. It was awesome. Uh, it was a moving experience to see that, to go into cathedrals and, and, and churches and look up at the ceilings where uh, it looked like there was carvings and so forth. And I, I remember in a couple of places we went into and in the Vatican and so forth, uh, the professor would say, that's not sculpture, that's, that's all painted on a flat surface but with the shadowing and so forth that the artist did, it looks like it's sculpture. It was amazing. I mean, it was taken back. I, I, I still haven't processed it, processed it in my mind all that I took in. But at the same time, I, I can remember going to the Grand Canyon 
It's just not looking at the top over. It's almost just like a picture. It doesn't seem real. But I remember one time going down into the canyon and living for a week down there and camping out and so forth. And, and you sense the awesomeness of God in his beauty. And you're taken back. I can remember being in Prescott and, and camping out with my wife in, in, in the, uh, the state forest. And one night we just looked up at the sky and it was so clear. And it seemed like a billion stars up there. It was just like lit up. And we, we, you feel so small in those situations. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 coming into the, the temple of God and seeing God on his throne and seeing the seraphim and the cherubim waiting upon him. And what happens to Isaiah? He falls down flat on his face and, and taking back because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips dwelling among uh, a people of unclean lips. When you sense that when you sense the holiness and the awesomeness of God, you feel so small. For years, I, I, I've surfed in, uh, both on the Pacific coast and the Atlantic coast. And I, I can remember a time watching a storm come in and, and you just see nature change and the waves will change. And just, it's just amazing to me. And those would be spiritual moments where you sense God and how powerful and how awesome he is. And that's what God is saying to Job in those chapters from 38 on. I am God. I am the creator. What gives you the right to even demand an explanation from me? That's a tough thing for us to to follow and to swallow that, that we you know, have to just serve him. And at times we don't have the answers. That's difficult for us. We, we feel like somebody's got to give us the answers. There ought to be some reporter that's going to report back why it's going on. We want to know all the details. And God's not always going to tell them to us. There is times that he's just saying, I'm God. Deal with it. That's rough. Again, Rudy, uh, uh, I know there's a God and I know that I'm not him. And I know that he doesn't have to answer me. I'm his creation. He is the creator. That speaks of the sovereignty of God. Now, this might not be a message that you want to hear. This might be a difficult message that this is not our loving Jesus, you know, holding us and rocking us in his arms. This is a rough thing, but that's part of who our God is that we serve. He is that awesome creator that we need to fear in a respectful way and understand who he is and, and be taken back by his awesomeness. Are you with me? Is that, that's, that's tough. And in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say this, is this, there, is there benefit in serving God even when there's no benefits? Is there benefit in serving God simply because it's God? That's rough. But there's an element that we as as Christ followers need to embrace that truth. Is God worth serving and following simply because he's God? We are not, as his creation, entitled all the time to an answer. You know, at the same time, I still believe in Romans 8.28 where it says, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I still believe that. Even though I don't always know the good or necessarily will see the good in this lifetime. 
I believe maybe in the next lifetime, I will see it. I think there's more element of that. In fact, I always feel when I, when I get to heaven, I'm going to be able to ask God about all the answers to all these questions that I, I don't have. But maybe when I get there, I'll be so taken back by who he is and his awesomeness, I won't feel the need to do that because he's God. Now, let me, let me tell you this. I've, I've shared this. I shared this at different times with my students, and, and I think maybe a couple of years ago, I sh- even shared it in here. Growing up, I was not a Christ follower. Uh, I, I didn't become a Christ follower until I was 24 years of age. My wife and I were six years into our marriage, and we made the decision at the same time. We, we, had, been, we had gone through the drug and the alcohol things and kind of the hippie thing and, and all that kind of stuff and, and came to a place where we, we found them not to be satisfying and we were searching for something else. And during that time of, of kind of processing and looking at my life and wondering what the next thing was that I was going to get involved in, uh, the thought of, my, my, of who would I like to be like most in life. Now, I didn't have a good relationship with my father. It, it was not the best, but I had a great relationship with my grandfather. And, and I, I used to, as a young boy, used to spend my summers with my grandparents they lived in a place up in Connecticut on Long Island, right there on the water. Uh, we'd go to sleep at night, listen to the tide, and we could go fishing and play around. It, we, it was just an awesome experience. So school would let out, and we'd head to Connecticut and, and, and be there, and then we'd come back like Labor Day and go back to school. And, and the only hang-up with staying with my grandparents is they had this religious hang-up. They liked going to church like you guys. And I hated it. I put up with it because of everything else. And uh, I can remember every night the TV would go off and we'd have to get down on our knees in the living room and pray out loud. Oh, God, kill me right now. You know, I wasn't praying that prayer, but it was just, it was, it was just like a horrible thing to do. I just, that was what I had to put up with to be in the place and to be with them. All right? And so I just always thought that we're really the coolest people had this religious hang-up, right? My grandfather died when I was 16. My grandmother died when I was 20. I'm still not a believer. When I became a believer, I remember one day, I just sensed the Holy Spirit speaking to me, you're a believer because of the prayers of your grandparents. You're a believer. You see, when we pray there is an eternal investment. We might not see the results of our prayers in our lifetime, but we are establishing something in the heavenly kingdom that has long-term results. And we need to hear that. Some of you might be here with parents or as parents and you, your children are not following the Lord and you wonder what's happening or you have relatives or, or something like that and you wonder... Uh, it, And you wonder, is it worth praying because you've been praying for them for years? Your prayers are being heard and you're making an internal investment in something. I came to Lord after my grandparents were dead. They died without seeing their three children or any of their grandchildren except the Lord. I accepted the Lord. My sister accepted the Lord. I actually had the opportunity to lead their two sons to the Lord. My mother died before I came to the Lord of of alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver. But her two brothers, I was able to lead to the Lord. That's internal investment. 
all things went together for good. I wonder when my grandparents died if they thought that following God was in vain. I don't think so. But they didn't see the results of those prayers in their lifetime here on this earth. God does all things work together for good in spite of the fact that none of our children, none of our grandchildren are following you. Are our prayers in vain? I wonder how many times the enemy would bring that thought to them, maybe causing them to sin. Those are tough things. I believe now they know, and I just in my own belief that that's there. Now, the neat thing about Job is you read the last chapter, God blessed him more in his latter years than he did. He, he got 10 more children. In fact, he got to see his grandchildren up through the fourth generation. He lived another 140 years. All his wealth was restored to him. I mean, God took care of him in the end. Things worked out for good. But the question comes, will we serve God for nothing? Simply because he is God. This morning I was reading a devotion by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a a German minister and actually a Bible teacher, a theologian during World War II in Germany. And he realized what Hitler was doing and he got with a number of friends and they, they came up with a conspiracy plan to kill Hitler. I think some of you might have seen the movie with Tom Cruise, Valkyrie. Basically, it's part of Bonhoeffer being involved in that. But Bonhoeffer, like the movie in Valkyrie, was one of those who were arrested before World War II ended. And he was arrested and put in prison. Six months before the end of World War II, he was hanged along with other conspirators. And I... He has letters that he had written from prison. And in one of them, he says this. Let me read it to you. We seldom live in ideal circumstances. More often than not, these are, not, there are, there, these are less desirable than we would like them to be. But circumstances need not control the quality of our life. It is what we make of them, those circumstances, which will determine life's directions. It is when we do not give way to fear, anger, disappointment, and frustration that we can transcend the limits of our situation. Therefore, we need to celebrate what we have, do, we, uh, do what we can, and trust God for the outcome. That's powerful to be written in his situation, knowing that he might not make it through his prison time and would eventually be hanged. What I want to tell you, some simple principles here. Number one, remember if you're in that situation or when you go through that situation, if it hasn't happened yet, where you just wonder why God is allowing certain things to happen. This is one thing that God gives us. We can express those things to God. And we can express them even in our anger and frustration. I I say this all the time. Over 50% of the Psalms, of the 150 Psalms, over 50% of them are complaints, laments. God is saying, I'd rather have you complain to me than punch your spouse or kick the dog or, you know, shoot the kids or, you know, any of those things. Talk to me. I can handle it. I'm God. 
And he gives us those psalms to let us know that we can express that anger and pain to him. In fact, he even gives us a book of complaints. It's called Lamentations. Laments. It's interesting to me, always when I read Lamentations, in the very middle, we get to chapter 3, and, and, and Jeremiah says, but at the same time, I know your mercies are new every morning. It's just interesting. But we can complain to God. He will handle it. And in those bringing it and expressing to God, that's, that's a cleansing type of thing. That's a, a counseling type of thing that eventually we will feel good just to get those things off our chest and be able to express them to a God who really cares. So remember, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you're looking for answers, pray about it. A second thing, in your prayers, ask God to give you a right spirit and a right attitude as you go through the trauma that you're in. Now, I know that's sometimes hard to do. You know, God tells us a command, love your enemy and pray for your enemy. Now, I've had people that he's nudged me about, I want you to pray for them. I'm going to tell you, my prayers for them don't start off real good. I do it because I have to. You ever do something because you have to, right? It's kind of like your mom tells you to sit down. I'm not sitting down. Sit down or you're, you know, there'll be the end. And you sit down, but you say, I'm standing up on the inside. You know, I got you. Right? And I think we sometimes do that when God asks us to pray for our enemy. But if you've ever done that, you know that all of a sudden you start to take a different view of your enemy in the process of doing that. They become less of an enemy. You start to understand them differently. You start to view them differently. Why? Because in your prayers over a period of time, you start to see them from God's perspective. And you see that they're a person just like you with faults and with problems. And your attitude changed. So don't be afraid. Second, just to ask God for a right spirit and a right attitude. When, when, when things are going bad and it seems like all hell is breaking loose in your life, express it to God. Help me to have the right attitude about this. And third, and, and maybe the last, that maybe there's something in the situation that God wants to teach us. Now, times, you know, so pray for that. Lord, I, uh, this is a horrible situation. If you're trying to teach me something, man, let me know what it is because I want to get through this. I want my attitude to change. I want the situation. So, so teach me what I need to learn here. I, I know it might not be sin in my life or this or that, but just teach me what's going on there. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There's sometimes, a lot of times I've prayed that prayer where God has simply communicated to me just through thoughts and God thoughts. God doesn't speak to me audibly or anything like that. But just through thoughts, he communicates to me. Bill, will you trust me? Even though I don't give you the answer. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. And sometimes that's the only answer he's given. And there's some things that I have a peace about, even though I don't know why they happened. But I trust that he is a good God. And he loves me. And he loves you. I trust that all things do work together for good, even though I won't see them necessarily in this life. But one day I believe I will see all the good because he has a home for us in heaven where there is no cancer, there is no affliction, there is no pain, there is no disease. 
Death sometimes is the ultimate healing for some of us. We'll all walk there. We'll all see. We'll all hear. All will be well. Sometimes we pray for that in this life and then somebody dies and what happened? Well, God healed them. He took them home. And believe me, they don't want to come back. They're happy. They're more worried about your feeling their loss, but they're fine. Hey, I'm well over here. Why would I want to go back? Are you nuts? Right? Uh, not that I've been there, but I really believe that's it. <laughs> okay? So uh, may, maybe today you're just going through that or you know somebody going through that. And I, I'd like to just close in prayer. For you, if you're in this room and you're in that place where, why is God allowing this to happen? Why, why is all hell breaking loose in my life? What, what is the reason I, Lord, help me in this. If that's you, or if you know somebody like you, let's pray for them at this time. Lord, grant that, I, that we will live in response to your will and response to your enabling power rather than by our circumstances and our weaknesses. Father, may we rise above the situations that we face and rest completely in your loving arms. With you and, and, and with us, uh, we can face difficulties all around us. So, so Lord, we, we cast your, our cares on you because you care for us. Father, uh, we desire to follow you no matter what, even when there's no other benefit than just following you. Give us this day and every day strength to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. All right? We'll see you next week. Okay. Yeah.